Hey there, podcast listeners. Richard Chinqui with Three Song Stories. Just giving you a heads up. One of the songs from this week's guest does have some explicit language. We don't generally edit music for content, so if that's not your thing, skip ahead during the songs. Otherwise, you're good to go. Keep listening. One, two, three. Welcome to Three Song Stories, the podcast that extracts biography from our guests via the songs that have touched their lives and embedded themselves into their memories. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. Our guest today is Jesse Thorne, which, by the way, we're super excited by. Jesse is host and producer of the public radio show and podcast Bullseye, heard Saturday evenings at 7 on WGCU. Listen to it if you haven't yet. He's also host of the podcast Jordan Jesse Go and the co-host and producer of the podcast Judge John Hodgman. He's also the proprietor of the podcast production outfit MaximumFun.org, which currently produces and distributes 39 podcasts, if Wikipedia is up to date. From the number of times I've already used the word podcast, you can probably tell Jesse might be the closest thing we've got in this world to a podcast mogul. How cool is that? Initially called The Sound of Young America, Jesse launched his flagship show Bullseye in 2000 while he was still a student at the University of California at Santa Cruz. It got picked up by public Radio International in 2007, then became Bullseye in 2012, and shortly thereafter, NPR started distributing it nationally. In addition to his work at MaximumFun.org, Jesse hosts and helps produce Put This On, a web series and blog about men's style. He also hosted The Grid, a cultural recommendation program on IFC, The Sound of Young America on Current TV, and has appeared on IFC's Comedy Bang Bang, among other television outlets. A native of San Francisco's Mission District, Jesse lives in Los Angeles now with his wife, podcaster and author Teresa Thorne, and their three kids and two dogs. All in all, having Jesse in our guest chair, even if he's in his host chair, because we're doing this via tape sync from his studio out in L.A., is almost shockingly exciting for us here at Three Song Stories. So let's get right to it. Hey there, Jesse Thorne. How you doing? I'm doing okay, Mike. Mike, I can answer your question, uh, how cool is that with regard to me being a podcast mogul? The answer, right? to that, the answer to that question is, not that cool. It's Luke cool? Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. Okay, okay. It's so, a perfectly so, okay. good way and, to make and, and, a living, but no, not a cool well, one. I, we're not talking about, yeah, we're talking about just coolness, not necessarily you know financial success, no offense. Um so I listened to Bullseye since we put it on WGCU a few years ago. I am not – I'm a terrestrial radio guy, so I was not super familiar with you, frankly, until uh, yesterday. And I did a – I went down the rabbit hole. You've done super cool stuff all across the board, which we'll get to some of it. But what I want to start briefly is with the new sincerity because that was my TIL yesterday. And, man, it resonates with me. And I think this show – and it sort of, for me, frames Bullseye and you. So can we start there? Can you define what that means for our listeners? Yeah, this is like a um, – it's like an ethos that some friends of mine and I created in college. And it is – not unlike the ethos itself, it is uh, like the content of the ethos. It is both kind of a joke and kind of not a joke. So basically what happened is we were sitting in the dining hall in college and a friend of ours named Rebecca was sitting with us. And she said, guys, 
I'm really uncomfortable when I have lunch with you. And we were like, oh, no, Rebecca, why is that? And she said, uh, I can never tell if you're telling a joke or not. <laughs> and um, we kind of – she's like, we should call it the new sincerity. So we we kind of came up with this idea, which is basically – you know, I'm, a ba- I, I'm like an old millennial. Right. I, was, I was born in 1981. And so I grew up around the popular culture of Generation X and, you know, obviously got a huge amount from it. But I think it was always deeply steeped in ironic reserve, right? Like it, whatever it is that you think of, like for me, the the ultimate expression, maybe not the one that Gen Xers would be the most proud of, but the ultimate expression is OK Cola the Coca-Cola product that was invented for Generation X that had, like, Charles Burns illustrations for its labels. And the idea was, well, if Generation X won't actually admit to liking anything, uh, we will create something that they can like not particularly liking. Right. And I think that I understand the, like, discretion part of that. Like, I do like the idea of having standards and... Caring about, you know, like picking the good stuff. Um, but it's just, that just wasn't a way of looking at the world that I wanted to live in. Um, like uh, ironic reserve, irony is a useful rhetorical tact, but it is no kind of way to spend your life. And so the new sincerity we kind of crafted around the ideas of, of things that in some ways coolness might suggest you should step away from or protect yourself from things that are big or outlandish or potentially embarrassing. And instead of shielding yourself from them, embrace them. And it, you know, it doesn't release you from, it it doesn't release you from discriminating between things that have merit and things that don't have merit. Right. But, what it does is give you a way to think about, you know, Dolly Parton or Missy Elliott's hefty bag, inflatable hefty bag suit or Parliament, the band, not the a lawmaking governmental body. body. <laughs> yeah. Um, these things that are Pee Wee Herman, um, these things that are in some ways absurd, but nonetheless carry real meaning that is more than just, I mean, the opposite of what I'm saying. Um, And that involve like real genuine risk at creating something grand, but can nonetheless also be funny, Um, fun and funny. Uh, And you know, like it was kind of a goof that we invented this. I mean, I like I literally wrote a manifesto just because I thought it would be funny to write a manifesto. But in some ways, it has informed what I've done the the rest of my career. And I think it like it it ended up being not because of anything I did, but just the you know because of the the river that I was swimming in. It, it ended up reflecting some of the values of a generation that I belong to. Maybe I'm the like oldest oldest member of. Um, that I think are the best. Like it, it isn't really just about. It isn't really just about. Like I think people hear the new sincerity. The reason we called it the new sincerity because it was was because it was more than, more indifferent than the things that became kitsch that created the aesthetics of Generation X. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not just big eye paintings or, or whatever, um, or, you know, sweatshirts with kittens on them. But certainly a dog named Hambone could be <laughs> an example of the new sincerity. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I I appreciate you explaining it for us. Um, I want to look. At, I mean, I, it helps me think about things a little differently because I've always tried to. I mean, I've always been ironic or kind of semi snarky, but I've always tried to do it in a in an uplifting or an enlightening way somehow instead of being you know hammering something. So anyway, um, well, let's get back on the rails of the three song stories train. Uh, what was the musical background of your childhood out there in San Francisco? Well, you know, my my parents broke up when I was uh, like two or three years old. I I actually genuinely don't know because I don't remember them ever being together. And they were in very active uh, conflict through my entire childhood. I mean, until I was in my late teens. And um, they really have – they're both amazing people and they have – I don't know how they – ended up marrying each other um, (laughs) because they're just so at odds in every way of being in the world. But one of the very few things that they do agree on, I mean, they used to say, I think both of my parents said this to me separately on different occasions. They're like, the only things we ever agreed on were Ray Charles, A Thousand Clowns, and James Brown. (laughs) (laughs) And... So I grew up in um, I grew up in two households, both of which were very passionate about music, and both of which were driven by primarily R and B and soul music. My mom was also a very passionate jazz fan, but one of the odd things about my mom's life is that when she lived in Washington D.C., which she did before she moved to San Francisco and before I was conceived, she lived in D.C. for like uh, until she was in her mid thirties. She had this huge jazz record collection, and it was in the basement of her then-husband's house, and she lost all of it in a flood. Hmm. Like, I'm talking about, like, she had, like, a 1,000, 2,000 records. Right. Lost them all in a flood and vowed never to buy music again. Oh, really? <laughs> because has, it was so heartbreaking. It, has she kept it up to this day? A pretty much. I mean, it's it's kind of amazing. Like you would you would never have met someone more passionate about music who did not own almost any music. Yeah. And my mom has a friend who will burn copies of CDs for her sometimes. <laughs> but you know, like I grew up with her telling me stories about oh, when I used to make clothes for Miles Davis or whatever, and but it, or like you know the shoes Barry Harris used to wear, or the time I saw the mothership at RFK Stadium or whatever. But at the same time, like, there was very little music in the house. Like, hmm. there was a period where she listened to a lot of Atahualpa y Panqui. But, like, besides that, I don't really remember my mom listening to a ton of music uh, around. It was more just, like, something she revered. Right. Uh, I think my dad had a more typical relationship with music. It, w- it was on in the house a lot. Um, my dad's uh, wife also is Irish, and so there was also a, f- a fair amount of... Irish music around the house when I was, you know, 10, 15 years old. So that was like, um, uh, they used to listen to the Chieftains and mm-hmm. Sinead O'Connor and Van Morrison were pretty much the the holy trinity. I think my, my stepmother maybe liked you too, but that, that's pretty far outside my dad's wheelhouse. So, <laughs> If you dug real deep, uh, can you think of an early musical memory, uh, you know, not even necessarily something that all you, you liked, but just something that flashes into that like really early mindset? 
Well, I mean, I was thinking of the three songs that I can remember liking from my early childhood. I mean, I'm talking about before second or third grade. And uh, one of them is the first song that I chose, so we'll, we'll get to that. The, f- the first one is The Freaks Come Out at Night by Houdini, <laughs> which is a, you know an a electro-hip-hop record from the mid-'80s that um, is – I mean, I still – like I ride for it right now. Like if somebody put on Houdini, like electro is one of the few subgenres of pre nineteen eighty seven ish hip hop that really holds up well contemporarily. Like you don't have to be super lyrical because it's it's basically a dance record. Sort of like the very early some of those very early uh, Sugar Hill hip hop records. You're like, right, those right, are, right. Those are just disco albums. Those are just disco songs with someone goofing around on top of them. Right. And so they work as disco songs, even if they're not the most sophisticated hip hop records. Like The Freaks Come Out at Night is that. And I don't know why. I mean, like, I guess just vocoders and stuff sound cool when you're a little kid. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I don't even know what it was about that. Like, it definitely wasn't the content. You know, <laughs> like I wasn't like four years old and thinking like, yeah, tell me what it means to be a freak. <laughs> um, well, yeah, what you know what I like about freaks? They're really great lovers. <laughs> um, the other song that I can remember liking when I was really little is the Cindy Lauper song, Time After Time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cindy Lauper ballad, which I guess is probably a pretty good song. I don't think I've heard it in a really long time, but uh, certainly Cindy Lauper's pretty fun. Um, and the reason I remember it is there was this cafe by my mom's house on 16th street in San Francisco, uh, called, I think it was called Rosa's restaurant. And uh, the reason I can't quite remember what it was called besides that it closed when I was eight or nine is that in my family, both my mother and father exclusively called it dollar Breck, uh, because you could get a breakfast special there for, there was a 99 cent breakfast special. Um, you know, it was like pancakes and eggs. We used to go there very regularly. Both of my parents had very little money when I was uh, younger until I was kind of joined the middle class when I was in my mid-teens. We used to go there regularly and they used to give me a quarter to put in the jukebox and that's what I would pick out of the jukebox. You know, mm. you just pick – there's things that you that you hook onto. Like yeah. I have a I have a daughter who's seven – and a year or so ago, I was driving her to school, and she had always regarded music essentially as like a, as a, as like a hassle to be endured. Uh-huh. Like I'm all, always have music on the turntable in the living room, and uh, she just considers it an inconvenience that she has to listen to that while she's trying to think. Um, but I put on. I was listening to Mothership Connection by Parliament, and there's a song on that record called "Night of the Thumpasaurus Peoples." And I told her that it was a song about dinosaurs learning to dance, which actually is not – that's pretty much what it is. <laughs> it is not an unfair summary of the themes of Night of the Thumbosaurus Peoples. And um, she like fix, fixated on it and wanted to hear it every day on the way to school for the next year. Um, and it it held up surprisingly well to that <laughs> amount of repetition. I'm a little sick of it, but uh, – Still sounds pretty good. Um, 
And so, like, you you fixate on weird things. And the and the third song is the is the song that I like really remember as being my first favorite song, which is uh, a Pointer Sisters song called uh, "Jump for My Love." Well, shall we listen to it, or do you want to uh, wax poetic about it a little bit before we do? I can wax poetic about it after. Okay, well, let's listen to it. This is uh, the Pointer Sisters' "Jump for My Love" from their 1983 album "Breakout." So that song came out in 83, you were born in 81, it was huge, so it was all over the place. Uh, where did it come into your realm? Kids play, my preschool. <laughs> I don't have a ton of memories. I, I, I grew up in the Mission District in San Francisco, and kids play was in a neighborhood called Glen Park. So both my mom and my dad, separately, would take me to preschool on the BART train, on the subway. And we'd walk, and I, I was even then a collector, so I, they both have stories of me picking picking things up off the ground to save, like eucalyptus nuts and stuff. Um, but I just I remember dancing to that song as as a three four year old boy, jumpy dancing, um, <laughs> jumpy dancing exactly, and dancing in this you know this was like a home preschool it was in basically a, a converted oversized garage um, and a backyard. And, yeah, I mean, it was just like one of those early joyful connections to music. I actually I, – I had not thought about this in a really long time. But the other day I got a press release for a new jazz supergroup that's on Blue Note. And one of the members is this guy called Taylor McFerrin who I went to preschool with. He was wow. at Kids Play with me. His his famously at the at the time he was like a little less he was less famous than he would become a few years later. But his dad is Bobby McFerrin. I I wondered if that was the case. Yeah, and uh, Taylor is a very very talented jazz musician, um, very successful jazz musician that uh, that went to our preschool. But you know, it was just like a regular preschool. It's more just that thing of that connection that you have with music that is like almost purely physical. Um, I I later got to have uh, the Pointer Sisters on my show on Bullseye, um, or at least uh, Ruth and Anita, who are the surviving Pointer Sisters. I think they tour with like a cousin and one of their daughters or something like that. It's a four-person group, I think, at this point. But um, Ruth and Anita are the uh, surviving active founding members of the Pointer Sisters. And that song is like a it's like a weird reflection of the early to mid 80s in urban music which is to say there was like there was like a, just like a few weird threads of things going on there was the beginnings of hip hop but that was not on the radio at the time there was almost basically no hip hop radio at the time and then there was like there was the beginnings of like quiet storm Soft R and B, but that was just growing. And then there was like a few funk holdovers, like Cameo and Lakeside and uh, the Gap Band and uh, Roger and Zap, um, that were kind of like electrifying, but hanging on to the seventies, pretty much. And the Pointer Sisters were part of this other thing, which was basically this effort by this bloated cocaine fueled music industry to take people who were 10 or 15 years into their career and make them s- superstars right. rather than semi-stars. Like this is the, you know, Tina Turner is a good example of this. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Gap Band actually is, you know, the Gap Band had had 10 years of career before they really before they really had their biggest hits. 
like a starship, you know, <laughs> like yeah. these these by bands the way, that were like. By the way, Star, uh, Jefferson Starship, uh, the final derivation, is the most hated song on this show so far. Just, just FYI. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's an easy, easy thing to hate, but you know, like this is a, not a song that was like written by the Pointer Sisters. This is this is one of their biggest hits, but it's not like outside of the fact that they have a great vocal performance on it um, and they're wearing great dresses in the video. It's not like it's not like endemic to who the Pointer Sisters are or anything. Right, right. Um, but it's a great tune. When I, I found out, you know, my mom was a very, my mom and her best friend, Claudia, uh, were serious Pointer Sisters fans in the early 70s when they were, I mean, when they came out, they're from, they're from the East Bay, they're from Oakland. And when they came out, they were like, they wore 40s dresses um, this is the early '70s, right? Thirty years, thirty years after that, um, they wore thrift store dresses. They were like the original vintage clothing stars. Uh, they used to travel with trunks full of beautiful clothes. Hmm. Their signature song in their early days, um, or one of their key signature songs, was a vocal rendition of the, you know, the bebop classic "Salt Peanuts." You know, "Salt Peanuts," "Salt Peanuts." Mm-hmm. And you know they did they did their one of their first hit was a version of Yes We Can Can you know New Orleans classic, and like they were very, their band had some of the most serious like the baddest drummer in the world like some of the most serious musicians in the world so it's kind of funny to hear them singing this basically producer music you know what I mean right right when you had them on the show and you were doing you know preparing for it however you prepare did your preschool jump dancing come across your brain at all or did it have to come out of reflecting on this show maybe maybe I told them about it a little (laughs) (laughs) now I have to go back and listen to that episode you know the other way the other way that they touched my childhood and I didn't even I didn't even know this until you know until I was in my 20s but they are they are the singers behind one of the most iconic musical segments on Sesame Street ever, which is the pinball machine that goes one two three four five six seven eight really? nine ten eleven twelve. Do, 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 do. That's the um, that's the Pointer Sisters. That's my TIL today. So great. Yeah. <laughs> so I I, t- I talked to them about that too. I mean, we talked about all kinds of stuff. But one of them was in the studio with me. One of them was at home. And the one, one who was in the studio with me was nice enough to give me a big hug after the interview. Aw. Do, um, really do your guests, uh, do you ever have music performed on Bullseye? I don't recall ever having heard it since we picked it up here in Fort Myers. Is that something that's part of your format ever? Well, we have, uh, we have a little rinky-dinky studio. I've, we've done it in the past, especially if, somebody can, especially if somebody can bring a guitar. I mean, that's like the, um, the standard because uh, I, I don't have a studio for a piano or whatever. Right, right. So I certainly don't have a studio for a drum kit and a band. I don't have the engineer for it either. So it's put a vocal mic on a guitar, and I have had some really, some really special performances. One that is coming to mind is uh, the punk rock, I guess, singer-songwriter Ted Leo. Actually, I was just talking to the other day, and I was telling him about it. He sang a few songs from his album back when I used to do the show at my house, which was which I did for a long time. And I was just, you know, before I had that meeting with him, I was looking at YouTube videos that was me, like, pointing a camcorder. The show at the time was really just me, and I had another job. And so it was just the, the camcorder pointed at Ted while he played an acoustic guitar and sang. The song that I was, I was remembering was called A Bottle of Bucky. 
and just absolutely gorgeous. Colin Hay is another one, actually. Colin Hay from Men at Work, hmm. who, you know, I think maybe people who are not into Men at Work think of Men at Work sort of like Dexie's Midnight Runners. They're both yeah. like really great bands that are reduced to being this like caricature of pop music in the 80s. But Colin is a really gifted singer-songwriter and a really funny, fascinating guy. And he sang a few beautiful songs on the show as well. It's been a while since we've done that. I, I should uh, I should remind myself to have anybody who plays guitar bring their guitar. In those early days, uh, how were you distributing it? Was it just like MP3s that were downloadable from a website and then they had to just sort out how to play it? Or what was the <laughs> paradigm? Yeah, I mean, that was the that was the very beginning. I started the show as my college radio show. Um, at KZSC in Santa Cruz, California, where I went to college, UCSC. You kind of turned on your radio voice there for a second. Yeah. I heard well, it. You, the official radio voice of KZSC in Santa Cruz, California, is a white guy with dreadlocks talking in patois. <laughs> so it would have been more like, Irma now, we're on KZSC, 88.1 to heavyweight, 88. Um, <laughs> we had Hi, more than one DJ at KZSC who would go to Jamaica to get dub plates and like compete in international like toasting competitions between sound systems, all of whom were white. Hey Jesse, um, this is uh this is Richard, the uh the producer, I'm the other the other creator of the show. I am from Jamaica and that is spectacular. That's not, that was that was dead on. <laughs> oh goodness. Yeah, so like uh uh but I did yeah, so I started I started the show on this community radio station in Santa Cruz, which was a really wonderful place to do it. And like a, a little while into our run, I was posting real audio files of the show oh, yes. on our website. Yes, name and, I haven't heard in a long time. Yeah, and a, and a guy from uh, a guy who was running the station at the University of Southern Mississippi in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, emailed me and said, "Hey, can I run your show overnights?" And he would run it with my friend Tom Sharpling's show, the best show on WFMU at the time. Now not on WFMU and called the best show. And it was just like stuff that he liked that he could put on his – because there was nobody to be there overnight. So he just put on whatever he could get for free. So I would send him an MP – I would email him an MP3 file. And like it was so serious. Like the biggest – the big transformation in my life is after I graduated from college, I was living in San Francisco. And the big transformation was when I went from KZSE to the local NPR affiliate, the now dearly departed KUSP. And they had a board operator. There was an engineer there. So I didn't have to, I could just make my show at my house and then I would literally mail them a CD. <laughs> right. From right. San Francisco to Santa Cruz, <laughs> the hour and a half drive. And then they, they could play it on their CD player. And I didn't have to make the drive back and forth to Santa Cruz in case there was like a, an emergency alert or whatever. Right. <laughs> that was like my big lifestyle. So So when that happened, I sold my car to buy a mixing board and a microphone and a phone machine, a telephone hybrid, and started making the show in my apartment on my home computer. Um, and it kind of it kind of went from there. It was like there was a station in Walla Walla, Washington that wanted my show, another college station. And eventually I eventually I hooked up with PRI after after podcasting was invented. They they heard my the podcast of the show and said, Oh, this is pretty good. Would you like distribution? And I was, you know, I still had a job. I still had a job for a couple of years after that. <laughs> but yeah, I was, I was just like a guy in his apartment making a radio show. 
How did you come up with with Bullseye? And, and was that your choice to come up with a new name or how did that all play out? Yeah, people were really baffled by the name The Sound of Young America. <laughs> uh, it was the slogan of Motown Records, I think, is where, I, where it came from. Um, but mostly it was like a goof because it was me and my two friends in college and we were on a college radio station in Santa Cruz. We were the furthest thing from The Sound of Young America, right? So... Once the show was marginally successful, and it has maintained its level of marginal success over the years, <laughs> um, but once it was marginally successful, like that joke was a lot less clear. So people thought that I really like people would be, just send me angry emails like, "You're not the sound of Young America. The real sound of Young America is whatever John Stewart or whatever." <laughs> and I would be like, "Yes, I agree. He is more the sound of Young America than I am. Uh, when I say it, it's a joke." <laughs> Um, and so I figured I, I, we needed at some point to get a name that would be less confusing and embarrassing. <laughs> and actually, um, the name was suggested by my friend Roman Mars, who's the proprietor of the podcast network Radiotopia and hosts a, uh, an incredibly successful podcast called 99% Invisible. He and I worked together a little bit, sort of redesigning the show. And, and then, yeah, maybe a year or two later is, is when I hooked up with NPR. You know, I'm going to take a weird divergence here. You know, News Radio is a TV show that I'm watching right now, straight through, for the first time since it came out. And you brought it up the other day on your uh, interview with Maura Tierney. Um, so I'm now only two degrees separated from her, which is what I really am <laughs> trying to say. And secondly, though, talk a little bit about having people on like her that you're huge fans of, because that seems to be how you kind of pick your topics, is just the stuff you're super into. Yeah, I mean... I think early on in the show, when it, I was still doing it with my friend Jordan, my friends Jordan and Gene, and we were maybe late in college, we had on this guy named Dustin Diamond, who was Screech on Saved by the Bell. Right. And we had him on because he was local. He was going to be in town, which was rare for Santa Cruz. We were excited to have a guest who was actually doing something in Santa Cruz. Um, and because, you know, we had watched Saved by the Bell and we thought it would be interesting to talk to a guy from Saved by the Bell. You know, that was like well, yeah. our, our Brady Bunch or whatever. And it turned out he's a monster, a genuinely terrible human being. He later went to jail for stabbing someone. I think I remember I that. Yes, yes. He bulked up he too, right? Now. Yeah. Um, but like he was telling – the reason I say that is he was telling like genuinely hurtful, offensive jokes on the air. And they were like street – they were like joke book jokes. Street jokes, as they call them in in comedy, he wouldn't change. He wouldn't change lanes, and like we're like, come on, man, like help us out here. He wouldn't talk about Saved by the Bell at all. He refused to talk about it. At one point, we were so frustrated because he wouldn't talk about Saved by the Bell, and whenever we talked about anything else, he would do something. He would say something lousy or mean. And so at one point, we just to get him to talk about Saved by the Bell, we said like, what if it's purely factual? Rank the Saved by the Bell cast members by height. <laughs> And he wouldn't do that. And we're like, okay, well, we got to go. <laughs> because we didn't have anything to fill the air. Like, we're on the air live. You know, we didn't have anything planned. Oh, this we had was no producer. live. I did not realize this was live. Yeah, we, oh, had, wow. we had no producer to, like, think of something to fill the time. Like, we're talking. Like, we have half an hour to fill before the KPFA news comes on. So we had to keep talking. And I think then we decided that we would only have things on that we actually genuinely believed in and thought were good. My show is less a celebration of whatever fanboying out or something like that than a series from from my perspective, a series of sincere recommendations from me to the audience. Like hmm. 
this is a person whose work I really believe in that I think is really special. That's why I'm sharing this with you. Like it is a choice. It's not just they're in the news or they have a great story. It is this is someone whose work I think matters. You know, these days there are a lot of interviews of that kind with comedy people, thanks to folks like like my buddy Mark Marin and, and other people like that. That was much less the case then. Um, and we were all, you know, comedy people. Um, we were doing comedy at the time. And depending on whether you count what I do now in my, you know, Judge John Hodgman, Jordan Jesse Go is working in comedy. We all work in comedy professionally now. So that was something we were really passionate about. I, I'm really passionate about hip hop. You know, there were these things that I didn't hear getting the thoughtful and considered treatment that I thought they deserved um, that I felt like I had something to offer. So, you know, when I have Maura Tierney on the show, it's because I believe she's a genuinely brilliant actress and because I love news radio. And so when I talk to her about news radio, it's not just me going like, it's not just me, you know, Chris Farley showing, you know, like, oh, what was it like to be friends with Dave Foley or whatever. Right, right. <laughs> um, but it does come from a very sincere place that, like, I, as a, you know, as a professional culture critic, I chose this thing because I think it's good and I think it's worth sharing on my show. Like, I have this platform. I want to make it count. Yeah. Um, and so that's why, I mean, News Radio I, was an incredibly important show to me as a, an adolescent. And Maura Tierney was very important to me in, as an adolescent. I won't tell you in what ways. So uh, because I admired her talent. Uh, you know, like that's that's every that's what I do on my show. Like it's things that I if it's not something that I actually care about or someone whose work I actually care about, it's, you know, it's a flat show. We're not trying to do a survey of all of the world's arts and entertainment. We're trying to choose things that we care about that we think we can communicate to the audience about. Well, it comes through. I'll tell you that as an audience member. Um, so when was the last time you bought mu- uh, music that had a physical form like an, of an album? You mentioned that you're playing albums around the house, so that probably is sooner than later. When was the last time I bought? Like yesterday. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> uh, almost every weekend. Actually, I just this week bought from the my my mom my aforementioned aunt my mom's lifelong best friend or adulthood long best friend claudia i bought her record collection from her she she needed to get rid of it and she said you know can you help me can you help me get rid of it and so i was just like hey listen why don't i just give you the money for it i can give you more money than a you know a squirrely record guy can give you right when i'm buying physical music it's mostly lps I'm at the flea market every weekend, so um, you're at the flea one, market. Like you have a booth, or you shop. I'm I'm buying it. I have a <laughs> well. My menswear blog has a store of like a vintage store called the Put This On Shop. So you can go to putthisonshop.com to see what I've bought at the flea market. Oh, I see. Um, you're yeah. It's you're for sale there. You're stock shopping. Gotcha. Yeah, exactly. So I, I'm there. You know, I'm there every Sunday. So I'm I'm a couple of them have sort of record components. Uh, the Pasadena City College flea market here in L.A. has a has a basically a record show attached to it. I've been to that one. Yeah, it's a great one. And I'll talk to the you know I'll, I know that I know the dudes. It's almost always dudes. Uh, I know the dudes, and um, you know I'll, I'll I'll buy I'll buy records all the time. The, besides my aunt's collection, the other day I was like, 
I need more Steve Reich records. So I went on eBay and, and bought four or five. And uh, so my my family has been subject to my uh, my interest in contemporary classical music now. <laughs> Do you remember the first music that you owned that you either chose to own or somehow had you know proprietary control over it? Yeah, I had a few tapes um, when I was a kid, and I had a few copies of tapes. I mean, I remember I had a cassette copy of Whoopi Goldberg's album of her first Broadway show that we had borrowed from the library. But music-wise, I remember having the Stand By Me soundtrack, which was like 50s hits. Mm -hmm. Um, And the first... I had a second-hand copy uh, that I bought at a garage sale of Please Hammer, Don't Hurt Him. Hmm. I had the first CD that I had. I think I was probably 11 or 12 when I got a CD player. You know, I got like a boombox. It was right on the edge in between when we called it a boombox and we called it a ghetto blaster. Um, the very the very dawn of the boombox era. Mm-hmm. Um I was dangerous by Michael Jackson. And mm. I had bad on cassette. I definitely had a cassette of bad. Mm. And then like the first albums that I remember like really truly like the middle school like when you're really falling in love with music cuz you're learning to have a an identity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Essentially, the second Diggable Planets album Blowout Comb is one that I listened to you know, when I was 12 and 13, when it came out, I probably listened to it a thousand times. Hmm. I had a single of Lay Your Head on My Pillow by Tony, Tony, Tony. Ah. Yeah, the single. Um, we used to do a character on, on The Sound of Young America in our college days called the King of Kissingles. <laughs> and he was just like, he was sort of like the king of cartoons from Pee Wee's Playhouse, but he only talked about Kissingles. Um <laughs> So he would just be like, where is my – this is not a joke. This is not a remembered punchline, but uh, where is my copy of Push It by Salt and Pepper? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I Lay Your Head on My Pillow by Tony, 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 uh, En Vogue's uh, – which En Vogue track was it? Maybe I had Funky Divas. I think I had the album. I think I had Funky Divas, the album. These are like Bay Area things, right? Like uh, – yeah. This is this is the and uh, uh, Vogue and Vogue and Tony 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 were were the hottest thing going and they were from they were from Oakland so they were our neighbors. Huh. All right, we are moving on to song two. What do we got? Well, this is a song that came out when I was in high school, and this is like the classicest. You know that thing about how you will always love most the music that you heard when you were seventeen. Mm-hmm. Well, the music that I heard when I was 17 that, like, changed the course of my life was uh, Things Fall Apart by The Roots. Um, their exceptional, seminal, brilliant, genius album. And the song on there that became a big hit was You Got Me with Erica Badu. It was actually written by the, – the hook was written by Jill Scott and originally performed by Jill Scott, but Jill was not famous at the time. So, by the way, do you like how I called Jill Scott Jill like we're like we're buddies? Hey, like you never know, to- man. You're Jesse Thorne. <laughs> like we work together on the number one ladies detective agency or whatever. Um, <laughs> I love Jill Scott. Uh, but um, anyway, uh, Erica, Erica was already Erica was already popping. So uh, this was this was like the Roots' first real hit. 
they had had some semi hits before, and this in some ways like still their almost their only real hit. Um, but yeah, this came out I think when I was a, a junior or senior in high school, and it was like it was just it was just a, a life changer. And I mean, I can talk about why, but why? Why don't we hear it first? Okay, I just have to ask real quick: Would this have played at like your senior prom? Would you have been out there boogieing to it? Uh, yes, I mean, I definitely was known for my boogieing. Uh, when I had access to my boogie shoes, um, uh, yeah, I think so. Like I went to an arts high school, uh, in San Francisco school of the arts, shout out to school of the arts. And, you know, I had a, a, my best, my like childhood best buddy went to Catholic school and the anthem of his high school football team that he was on was bout it, bout it by, by master P definitely. There was just a lot more of the roots and you know we were we were in the bay area so hieroglyphics the living legends uh quantum projects blacklicious and uh latirics like that was the stuff that was going on in my high school because we were all very artistic and we were totally above about it about it um now i listen back and i'm like oh yeah about it about is a jam no wonder this is a huge hit um but yeah, definitely. We were all pretty fancy. So the problem at the school dance was, number one, it was a small school, so it was hard to get enough people to get people dancing uh, without anybody being drunk because you can't have booze at a school dance. And also the dancers were too cool to come to the school dance, so they weren't dancing. And so, like, the uh, but the other problem was everybody had such refined music taste, you know, because half of them are, like, aspiring to be professional musicians. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, like, they're all like, mm, I only dance to Charlie Parker. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. But this is, about as, this is about as close as it gets to a hit in my high school. All right, well, let's listen to it. Uh, let's imagine Jesse with his dancing shoes on uh, in 1999. This is You Got Me by The Roots featuring Erica Badu from their album Things Fall Apart. So uh, what's the story to that one? Because I'm pretty sure it wasn't going to be dancing at senior prom. <laughs> oh man, I'm still I'm still jamming. It's been a while since I've heard that Questlove's solo on the drums in the outro or the third chorus of that song. The dude, like the drum and bass solo, is like so 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 virtuosic and yet so restrained. It's just like one of the great drum solos of all time, as far as I'm concerned. Like the way that it drives the tone of that song is so remarkable and Quest is such a brilliant producer in addition to being a brilliant drummer and a brilliant engineer um it's just a it's just an amazing thing anyway the story of the song is my wife and I started dating my senior year of high school our senior year of high school she and I were both theater students at school of the arts uh although she was in a she was in a different class from me because she had transferred in and we we met actually in literature class. We had a shared literature teacher named Mr. Crawford, who was a very nice, he was a student teacher at the time. Uh, he was like a nice, he was like a cool bear, uh, subcultural group rather than the animal. Um, he was like a leather jacket, like, guys, let's let's talk about, he was like, he was like the chill equivalent of the, you know, let's turn your chair backwards teacher. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, let's let's rap about this. <laughs> He was like a cool bear. He was into he was into Love and Rockets, the seminal uh alternative comic book series. I remember he was really into Linda Barry, who I later had on my show and is like the most amazing person ever. 
um, that kind of stuff. And I remember my wife once told me that she she was really impressed with me because I swore a lot in class because <laughs> I didn't care. I really didn't care. Um, but anyway, we you know we were we were in the same Shakespeare class, and um, uh, I remember once our teacher, whose name was Roz, we came back from working on a scene, and she she said in front of the class, she said, "Jesse and Teresa, were you working on your scene or were you just off snogging?" Um, and which were yeah, you so, doing? A little of each. <laughs> um, and so anyway, <laughs> we kind of we kind of fell in love in uh, our our senior year of high school. And Teresa had gotten into Mills College, which is in Oakland, and she was planning to go to Mills College in Oakland. And I was going to go to UC Santa Cruz because that was the only college I got into. She found out a little late that she got into Sarah Lawrence in New York State, and. She didn't think she could go. She had never been out of California, and her parents did not have any money. And basically, I was like, if you got into this amazing college that you want to go to, you should just go there. And so her parents wrote a letter saying, listen, we can't afford to send her there, but we want to. And they like doubled their financial aid offer, and she got to go. And it was great for her because it was like she's such a – she's so brilliant, and she had had you know, her – Horizons in some way had been had been limited by the fact that she you know she grew up in Marin County north of San Francisco and so like coming to even coming to San Francisco for high school in a public high school in San Francisco was a big deal for her kind of culturally and so the expansion of Horizons that was required to think about like oh I could go to a great college three thousand miles away um, was a lot and. So it was really exciting that she got to do it, but it was sad because I knew that she would be 3,000 miles away. And we broke up initially. Like when we went away to college, we we were like, okay, this is it. And it did not take. I think we both were pretty miserable about being broken up. And I think we were broken up for about two months. And we maybe came home for Thanksgiving and we're like, being broken up sucks. (laughs) Let's make out. (laughs) Um And uh, so it ended up that this song, which we had shared a love of because it was a really great song and, you know, it was something that I had shared with her. Like she was really into it was the it was the mid to late 90s. She was really into Ani DeFranco and Tori and Tori Amos. Yeah, yeah, of course uh, she was. <clears throat> Ani's been on Ani's been on my show and she is a cool ass lady and I think she is the coolest. I think she was so great. I really loved her. Cheers and I to know that. that yeah. She was. She was friends with Prince, you know. You can't be that. You can't be uncool and be friends with Prince. Uh, that said, her her music is not for my tastes. Um, and so I had shared this. You know, Teresa is more open minded than I am. Uh, had come to love the love the roots and love this album and this song. And so the themes of maintaining an intimate relationship when you're very far from someone obviously became much more powerful over the years that we were apart. And actually, you know, we spent as much time together as we could. Her her junior year, she did a semester in Cuba. And in Cuba, she really, we couldn't talk. Because mm-hmm. um, there weren't phones. You know, she got, to, she got to send emails once every few weeks. She would take a floppy disk to the internet cafe, wait in line for three hours or whatever, and then real quick, upload all her emails that she had already written in, in the homestay they were staying in and then send them. So I could like interact with her. I think we talked on the phone once during the 
four months or whatever it was that she was in Cuba. And it was very hard. It was very difficult. And I wouldn't recommend it to anyone (laughs) (laughs) except that it worked for us. I I mean, I also never in a million years would I take it back. Like, um, I'm, I'm more in love with my wife than I was 20 years ago. And I'm very grateful that we stuck that out um, because she's like my, you know, my greatest partner in life and the the best person I know. So when I hear this song, this song kind of became our song. You know, I, I think it, it's a melancholic song. You know, it's it's about how hard it is. It's not a song about how sweet it is to, you know, be reunited or whatever. It's a song about how hard it is to be far apart from someone you care about and how it makes you feel scared and lonely and all those things. But it's also a very beautiful song that manages to convey the delicacy of that situation and the beauty of that situation. And so when I hear it, I think of that time in my life and um, and it, you know, it reminds me of how basically of how worth it it was to go through that, you know, because I, I love my wife. Hmm. Um, she's, she is the best part of my life and has been since I've known her. Hmm. So, um, if that, if that song were to come, if that song were to come on, um, where you guys were out somewhere, would you immediately just look over at each other and like, there it is? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the only, the only other song like that is probably a song for you, the, the Donny Hathaway version, uh, which I think is like, I'm, I'm not a, I, I generally prefer dance music to love music. There are certainly exceptions, but that's the sort of straight devotion song that would make us look at each other. But, you know, you you send me email instructions. Don't pick the song you did a dance to at your wedding. And that's the song we did a dance to at our wedding. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, by the you. way, if here's a pro tip, a pro tip for anybody who wants to play the Donny Hath version of uh, a song for you at their wedding. You got to cut a lot of intro. You got to cut a lot of intro. A lot shout of out staring to our DJ. around. <laughs> shout out, shout out to our DJ CJ Flash. CJ Flash. Uh, when we told him that's a song, he's like, "You guys, we're gonna have to cut a lot of intro." And we're like, "Yes, we agree." <laughs> uh, <laughs> There's not a lot of dancing you can go- do to do 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 the long ass piano on the beginning of that record. You guys should have come up with some sort of choreographed way to play off of it. You know, <laughs> too late yeah. now. Um, thank you, by the way, for abiding by our bylaws. We appreciate that. Um, karaoke. Where does it fit into your life, if if anywhere? I've never karaoke'd. I think if I did karaoke, my song would probably be Hello Baby by the Big Bopper. Okay. They got that at karaoke, right? Hello, baby. Oh, you know what I like. <laughs> Why haven't you karaoke'd? Seems like, I mean, you studied theater, you're a culture guy, you do media. Seems like karaoke ought to fit in there somewhere. I neither sing nor drink. Oh, well, you <laughs> so know. So it's a real, geez, it's a real thanks for, a, a karaoke is a real recipe for shame. Yeah, thanks for distilling that right down there. I don't drink <laughs> or sing. <laughs> the last time I sung in public was, um, the last time I well, sung in like public was. Well, it was like 10 seconds ago. You just obeyed well, me. <laughs> the last time I sung in public for real, though, was a junior year production of Little Shop of Horrors. <laughs> Okay. Okay. You got. You do have. Go ahead. Even even then, I definitely needed that accompanist to play the melody. I'm like, take that right hand and play the melody, so I can copy you. Do not embellish. Do not harmonize. 
play the melody straight on that right hand so that I can just try and barely keep it to tonality. Do you have any TV theme songs committed to memory that you might be able to, you know, sing a little bit of? Do you know the theme to It's Gary Shandling's show? I don't. I know the show. Anyone? So It's Gary Shandling's show. There was this great Judd Apatow documentary about Gary Shandling uh, that ran on HBO last year. Um, and I think Larry Sand- the Larry Sanders show, which Gary Shandling created, is the best television show ever. Uh-huh. Um, but It's Gary Shandling's show, which is the show he did that preceded that, was also a great show that held up exceptionally well. Um, and that it was the was one of the big inspirations behind The Simpsons, which I think is also one of the greatest television shows ever. It's a super funny kind of um, fourth wall busting, yeah, yeah. full of jokes, meta sitcom. It's Gary Shandling's show. And the theme went, this is the theme to Gary's show, the opening theme to Gary's show. Gary called me up and asked if I would write a theme song. It's almost halfway finished. How do you like it so far? This is the theme to Gary Shandling's show. <laughs> you got to do karaoke, man. <laughs> it's the stupidest song. <laughs> Oh, thank you for playing along with our silly game here. Um, okay. It's yes, time. and. That's the improv training, my friend. Yes, and. Yes, and. Uh, amen. Um, time for your last song, Jesse Thorne. What do you got? Well, anyone who has ever listened to, well, I guess probably any show that I've ever done, knows that I have an unnaturally intimate relationship with the place of my birth, which is San Francisco. Um, I had a shrink tell me one time. <laughs> I was like, I feel like people are, I I feel like my whole emotional life is built around walking around my neighborhood at night when I was a teenager by myself. And I grew up in the Mission District in San Francisco, which um, at the time was still a pretty pretty rough neighborhood in, in a lot of ways, but a very vibrant and beautiful, amazing neighborhood. And he was like, well, well, we know a little bit about your your relationship with your parents, which might have been somewhat estranged. Can you think of anything in your life at the time? He's one of those shrinks that wouldn't say anything to you. He'd just try and trick you into saying it. Mm -hmm. Can you think of anything in in your life at the time that may have been more stable, that you might have had a more stable emotional relationship with than your parents? And I was like, oh, right, my neighborhood. (laughs) Um, But I I loved where I'm from. Um, I was very, very lucky you know, when, on Bullseye, I interview many people who became artists or went into creative fields because they were alienated from the places where they were from. Not always their families, sometimes their families, but because they, you know, you know, Nick Offerman grew up in rural Illinois on a farm. He, you know, he was like a football player and stuff or whatever. Uh, but he always knew that there was something that didn't fit him about it until he went to college and became an actor. And he said, oh, I know what I want to do. I want to move to New York and Los Angeles and be an artist. And that is a very common kind of story, you know, whether it's that or people trying to escape poverty where they came from, you know, whatever. And I feel very lucky that when I was a kid, there were while there were problems with where I came from, I mean, I got I got jumped a fair number of times and, you know, there was crime and stuff. Um, you know, it was, the, it was the 80s and early 90s. There was, you know, people selling crack on the streets and stuff. But I just always loved it. Like, the place I'm from, I couldn't be more proud to be from. And one of my favorite parts of hip-hop, I have many favorite parts of hip-hop, but one of my favorite parts of hip-hop is that 
hip hop is an expression of identity, and a central part of that expression of identity is a collective identity based on place. You know, we are from this place. We are the people from this place. And like in art, there's very little else that's like that. I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's rooting for a sports team is a similar feeling. Yeah. Um, this feeling of pride of this part of your identity that is who you are because of where you're from. And so, and in the in the Bay Area, I think that is particularly strong, especially in hip hop. Like the Bay Area hip hop tradition has always been, you know, there have been hit makers from the Bay Area. You know, there was Hammers from the Bay Area. Um, Tupac was from the Bay Area significantly. But the core identity of Bay Area hip hop has always been about creating within the world of the Bay Area, creating independently, building an independent business. Whether it's, you know, it starts with Too Short in the mid 80s and goes through the underground hip hop in the late 90s, like, you know, I was talking about hieroglyphics and living legends and so on and so forth. Um, and even through to today and, and mob music in the, in the 90s and, and 2000s, hyphy in the 2000s, um, they're all like aesthetics and cultural groups that identify with this place and world and don't really care about the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, like one of the reasons there have been fewer hit makers from the Bay Area than anywhere else is that the Bay in the Bay Area, you can make a living making independent hip-hop music. You could when you could still sell records. By within the Bay Area, just in that world, you could, you could become a star and live a, a great life. You know, the first hip-hop radio station was in the Bay Area, uh, KMEL, the People Station. Um, and that that sense of place and that sense of belonging is built into Bay Area hip-hop music in a way that is endemic to all hip-hop, but, but not necessarily to this extent. And like the greatest exemplar of the Bay and also a truly great hip-hop artist that whose spirit like inspires me every day is this rapper called E-40 who is a guy who he's hardly had a national hit in his 25-year career. I mean, he's had some semi-national, some national semi-hits, um, but who is, you couldn't pick, like if you said to somebody from the Bay, like, who's more legendary, Tracy Chapman or E-40? Or you said, like, who's more legendary, Sly and the Family Stone or E-40 or Confunction or... E-40 or Huey Lewis in the news or E-40. There's all these Bay Area. Chris Isaac or E-40. They would all say E-40. Even if they were a country music fan uh, in Danville, Hmm. they would say E-40. And this song, the one that I picked, is called Yay Area. And uh, the producer, Rick Rock, who's like a legendary Bay Area hip-hop producer, loops a track from the first Diggable Planets album, which was one of the first hip-hop albums that I ever owned. And I, I was lucky enough to have the voice you hear on this, uh, Ishmael Butler, on on my show a few years ago. And, you know, I that was another one where this is rare, but after the interview, I was like, hey, Ish, I just want to let you know, like, how much your music meant to me and can I have your autograph? <laughs> um, but 40s, like, the thing about 40 is 40 is a legend of game spitting. Like, 40 talks, he makes up words. And phrasings and flows like 
you know, like like Picasso made up as like graphic aesthetic hmm. styles. You know, he is a font of new ways to think about how you can make words into music. And he's invented hundreds and thousands of words. You know, uh, he'll tell you that he's the ambassador of the yay. He's quarterbacking and flea flicking and uh, flamboasting and all these insane made up words. And like now I think maybe he's a more broadly accepted figure in hip hop. But definitely when I was a kid, like if you talk to somebody from New York, they'd be like, oh, right. I can't listen to that. Oh, it's horrible. His flow is his flow is too crazy. Like he's always making up words. I don't know what he's talking about. What's what's uh, you know what's gaffling? Who's coming out the cut? You know, like what does all this nonsense mean? And this is like this is late period E forty, but it's just like a an expression of the spirit of the Bay, which he calls the Yay, Yay being Yayo meaning cocaine selling, um, but also Yay. <laughs> like that's one of the great things about forty is like. 40 is sure he's talking about selling drugs because that's part of what hip hop is. But he's also he's comfortable with the he's comfortable with the fact that yay means yay. I mean, I I have a friend, a colleague at my podcast network, Ben Harrison, who had a buddy in in high school and college who worked in a recording studio in Oakland. And he told this story that was like 40 came in and he had a three hour session to cut a guest vocal on an R&B track, like a local R&B track. And he came in with all his crew. They went in. They got drunk and blazed trees for two and a half hours. Then 40 came out, and the my friend Ben's friend worked at the front desk, and he said, hey, yo, you're white. What does equestrian mean? <laughs> and Ben's friend goes, Ben's friend goes, I mean, I guess like having to do with horses? And he goes, all right, tight. See you in a few. Goes back in the studio, writes a verse with equestrian in it, lays it down in 10 minutes, one take, and bails. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, hey, oh, thanks, white boy, on the way out, you know? And, like, the pride that we have in somebody as creative and vibrant as 40, as distinctive as 40, as, like, independent as 40, somebody who could only come from the Bay, you know, this guy that, like, sits behind home plate when the Giants are in the World Series and, uh, you know, sits at courtside and gets a shout-out or d- gets daps from Clay Thompson when the Warriors are in the finals. Like, he, he, is the, he is the ambassador, you know? He is the Bay, and this is the song that's about the Bay. All right, well, let's listen to it. This is uh, Yay Area uh, from E-40's 2006 album, My Ghetto Report Card. This is going to be a pretty public radio comment here, but is he kind of like the James Joyce of the world of rap? I think that is entirely fair. Entirely fair. I mean, like, if you, the aesthetics of it are so distinctive. Um, you know, hip hop aesthetics have been pushed pretty far. It's 2018. I mean, we're in like year 40 or whatever. But um, the the things that I would call your attention to, besides the, the language things, I mean, yeah. you hear the language things. Like, he's, he's called, you know, he's, he's called, Yaper is. Paper money that you get from from selling yay selling drugs, right? Like a scraper is a low rider, um, or just a ride, right? Like there's all these there's all these words and languages, and you know, one of the things about slang is it it is uh it is an expression of group identity, right? Like the purpose of slang is to create 
uh, like a reverse or, or I guess a standard shibboleth. It is a way to distinguish between those right. who are in and those who are out. So if you are in a margin, if you're in a marginalized group, you create your own slang so that you are in rather than out. Right? You're out of. If you're from like 40s from Vallejo, uh, which is a, a historically very economically depressed small town in the in the East Bay, um, that's probably best known besides for E40 and Confunction, uh, probably best known for Marine World Africa USA, a water park, but like. If you're from Vallejo, you are cut out of the economic engine of America. You are cut out of the – if you're African-American, you're cut out of the racial power and privilege that you could get from being a white person. You are cut out in many ways, right? So by creating a new language that those people cannot speak, you are redefining the boundaries and placing yourself in the center rather than being outside someone else's boundaries. So the thing with Forty is that's he approaches that in this wild, uh, vibrant, joyful way. And that sense of play is never far. And you hear it in the way that he, you know, uh, that, you know, the way he the way he'll roll a consonant and love a consonant, which in hip hop, usually they leave out consonants, especially at the end of words, whereas Forty will... Forty will twist it and stretch it and make it into almost like a noise, rather than a, a part of a word. All that stuff, it, it, to, to my mind, it's like a it's like an extension of the spirit of Sly and the Family Stone or even Santana. This kind of feeling in the Bay Area of this kind of ecstatic, pluralistic community feeling that is driven by art and joyfulness. And, you know, he makes it very – this is an explicit song I mean, more ways than one. But it's like explicitly about what it's about. You know, he says, if you're getting that independent scratch, don't forget the N-words who taught you that. That's the Bay. Like the Bay is about being yourself and making your way in life. My friend, my friend Andrew is a hip-hop critic. He now owns a record store in Oakland. First time he lived for a while in the Bay. He's from New Jersey. He called me one time. I'm like, how's it going living in the Bay? You know, is it is it fun? He's like, oh, I hate it. And I'm like, why is that? He's like, every time I'm at, a, I'm at a party, somebody wants to tell me about their T-shirt line. <laughs> and it's like everybody thinks they belong to and have the ability to create in the community context. That's like right. taken as red. And that is what inspired me to have almost, you know, my whole creative life. Like my my business and my career are driven by that feeling. Mm. Do you ever have uh, E40 on your show? I've tried to have E40 on my show. We got an email back from e- from 40's manager the other day. We emailed him to try and get him on the show cuz he's got a he's got a new record out and um hip hop managers are hard to pin down. But he said, "Yeah, he said he wants to do a Tiny Desk concert too." So, if anybody from NPR Music is listening, let's get 40 on Tiny Desk. Let's do it. He can bring Droopy I, I'm, I'm the whole crew. And, you know, Stick and, with and, it. And, and, and E40, if you're listening, you go to go on Bullseye. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, we have taken up more of your time than I had intended, so I'm going to start up. We're going to pivot into a speed round here as we ramp down this, uh, this podcast uh, recording. So uh, short answers if possible. Um, p- peak live musical sure. moment from your life. Seeing Andrew W.K., in about 2001 or two, with my friend Jordan, who I still do Jordan Jesse Go, my comedy show with, um, I had never been to a punk rock show of any kind or a metal show of any kind. Jordan was a punk rock guy, so he knew a little about it. And Andrew is the most, I mean, talk about ecstatic. Andrew's show is like, it's like, um, 
if Lemmy from Motorhead met Mr. <laughs> Rogers. It is like this this insane expression of love that is physical, like people hitting each other out of love, um, people losing their minds and crying and jumping from the stage and jumping on Andrew and. It was a totally amazing thing. That or the time I saw the Roots at Maritime Hall in San Francisco with my mom, and she almost beat a lady up. <laughs> what is the what is the what is the furthest you've traveled? In, you know, explicitly to see music. I've gone to I've gone to music festivals to perform. I saw, I remember, I saw a Band of Horses at uh, Bumbershoot in Seattle. That was a long drive, but I, I wouldn't. Have, I mean, a long flight, but I wouldn't have did it if if I wasn't doing the Sound of Young America there too. Yeah, it was a two for then. <laughs> Yeah, the answer is the answer right, like, okay. uh, well, half okay. an hour. Right, okay. Then, you know, some people have, you know, I flew to Spain to see Sting and some people don't. I once went, I once made a drive that was a lot longer than I expected to Salinas to see Gallagher. And it turns out Gallagher is super <laughs> racist and homophobic, so I felt really bad Him about having made the drive. start a podcast. Uh, best album yeah. of all time, in your opinion? Well, I'm not going to, that's a trick. First of all, that's a trap you've set for me. Can we change it to... Like favorite well, yeah, album just of all the time, the one that you'll always so return to, the one that has the best, you know, the most special place in your heart. Uh, Fresh nice. by Sly and the Family um, Stone. Can you recommend a band or a couple bands that n- that our listeners just won't be familiar with that you're into that you want to give a shout out to? Yeah, I love uh, I love an L.A. rapper named Sugar Free, who I think even a lot of hip hop fans outside of Southern California don't get. Um, you should know before you listen to Sugar Free that all his songs are basically literally about pimping. Like not necessarily right. as a metaphor, <laughs> so it's you have to you have to have a sort of moral relativism to enjoy it. On the other hand, he's got this one song where the chorus goes, "I keep my nails done, I speak well, I'm watching my cholesterol, live on a body of water, and I enjoy drinking alcohol," and that's like the most greatest thing anyone's <laughs> ever said. Um, he's like the only dude who could spit game like forty can. Like he could say ridiculous stuff that is so glorious that you're like, I can't believe hmm. anybody ever said that. And there's a rapper, you know, I've been listening a lot. This is kind of old man rap music, but there's a rapper named Ka who's out of New York, K.A., who's a firefighter in New York. And he's, I mean, he's probably a 35, 40-year-old man. And he's only really started recording in the last few years. And his songs are kind of like a more more contemplative Wu-Tang Clan aesthetic. Uh, He's got a kind of quiet, monotonous flow. And the songs are really beautiful. And I think even if you um, even if you don't know much about hip hop aesthetics, it's something that you might that you might be able to appreciate. And then one for people who are like, I'm not going to listen to any rap music. I get it. If you, you don't like rap music, you don't like rap music. Uh, Swamp Dog, that's my dude. His album "Total Destruction to Your Mind" is a psychedelic soul album from the end of the '60s. He made a lot of other great records, but "Total Destruction mm. to Your Mind" is probably his best. And it's like insane and funny, but it's also very beautiful. And it's also like a straight heartfelt soul album sung by a guy who I once, when I was in college, played it on my, ra- my music radio show. And somebody called in and they're like, what was that amazing song you, you played? It sounded like the singer was half Van Morrison and half Cher. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, that was Swamp Dog. Like I knew wow, immediately. That's a, I like the, I like the so, sound of that. Um, yeah, mess, uh, is, there, um, is there any song that you'll always turn off if it comes up on the radio besides We Built This City on Rock and Roll? <laughs> Man, I don't even remember the last time I listened to music on the radio. The Bay Area, I mean, uh, L.A. hip-hop radio is so dire. Like, I know that it's it's like, what am I, a guy in 1996 complaining about hip-hop on the radio and how bad it is? 
but like it is really rough. And there was a long, there was a period where I was trying to listen to the hip hop station in in L.A. here in L.A. because I was like, I got to hear the new hits. You know, I like the new hits usually, but they played so much bad EDM and stuff. And they played that LMFAO song. They played all the LMFAO songs, and they're so horrible. They're so horrible. And then they're kind of long, too. So you're just like, I got to make, I got to white knuckle it through five minutes of LMFAO. Oh, the worst. Um, The worst. Your sign off on Bullseye, the uh, all great radio hosts, did that come along when, or how, you know, what's the origin of that? How far back does that go? I used to listen to this sports talk radio station called KNBR 68, the sports leader in San Francisco. I still, I guess, I listened to Giants games on KNBR via the internet. And um, it was like a formative radio listening experience for me. And I used to listen to this guy called Razor Voice Ralph Barbieri, who was kind of a sweet, sensitive sports talk host, like a weird intellectual sports talk host. And uh, his sign-off was always angels fly because they take themselves lightly. And it was such a stupid cliche. (laughs) I really liked the guy, and I, I think he meant it in the right spirit. I was like, God, what a corny thing to say at the end of every show. And then I just one day I was like, I was just trying to think of ways to make the the credits less mm-hmm, boring mm-hmm. for me to read. <laughs> and just one day I just was like, just remember all great radio hosts have a signature sign off. <laughs> like that's the thing you have to remember. And I was like, that's pretty stupid. That's uh, that that stays. <laughs> um, who would be your biggest get uh, right now besides E forty for Bullseye? E forty is it? E forty is it? I got Randy Newman the other day, so. E-40 is at the top of the list, no doubt about it. I mean, there's plenty of people that I would love to have, but 40 Water's it. I, if you want me to throw another one on, I'd say Andre 3000 from Outcast and uh, Mike Lee, the director. Nice. All right, uh, uh, we got to go. Any final thoughts? Thank you for having me. Thank you for doing it. Did, did I sound smart when I said I like Steve Reich? <laughs> Um, yeah, of course. You sounded pretty smart the whole way Hopefully through. Hopefully that balances out the amount that I talked about E-40 and public radio listeners like, who is this man? We make this podcast in the studios of WGCU Public Radio on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chinqui is co-creator and producer. Tara Callaghan is our online content producer. Our executive producer is Chris Duffus. Our theme music was created by Dave, Dave, Dave Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Petersburg, Florida. For this week's Parting Tune, I'm back in Kansas City, Missouri, going to the mall with my grandma, Canary, my dad's mom, doing some back-to-school shows shopping before what was probably first grade. Part of the goodness of that routine we had with her, besides just getting to hang out with my truly wonderful Grandma Betty, was getting to pick one item that was entirely up to me. No rules, or at least that's what it felt like at the time. Well, I had my eye on a particular belt buckle that I'd seen during a previous trip to the mall. It was just ridiculously awesome. It glowed a bright blue and gold with the kind of shimmering inlay that caused it to look like a kind of optical illusion that brought out all the colors of the rainbow. It was also a bit of fan swag because emblazoned across the front in the band's signature font, it proclaimed Bee Gees. I had very little actual love of or understanding about the Bee Gees, but man, I rocked that belt buckle throughout elementary school. I'd like to think that somewhere out there is someone who remembers that little blonde weirdo in Kansas City in the late 70s who really liked disco. So here's Staying Alive by the Bee Gees from their 1977 album Saturday Night Fever. I'm Mike Canary. Keep listening.
Next time on Three Song Stories. So I was their entertainment. I was the live Ziggy Stardust. I and this is wrong on so many levels, but you don't know. Like I was five yeah. and I was on stage. Dance five year old monkey Bowie. Yes. 